As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello again. I'm Nurse Mo, and this is the Straight A Nursing Podcast, where I teach nursing concepts and share tips on how to thrive in nursing school and at the bedside. I am so, so glad that you are here, and I hope that you find this episode helpful. If you do, I'd love it if you would follow the show and share it with a friend. So today we're diving into a fundamental nursing concept. And this is a great concept to review, whether you're brand new in nursing school or you've been a nurse for a while. And that is the concept of pain. Now, we normally do our listener shout outs at the beginning. I'm actually moving those towards the end of the episode as a way to wrap up the episode and celebrate my listeners. What I'm starting with today are three stat facts about pain. So I found these to be kind of interesting and thought that you would too. So stat fact number one about pain is that the brain processes pain but cannot feel pain. In fact, some individuals undergo awake brain surgery so their neurological status can be observed throughout the procedure. Stat fact number two about pain is that people who cannot feel pain have shorter life expectancy. That's because pain is a protective mechanism, and we'll talk about that more in just a bit. Thankfully, having the condition where you cannot feel pain is actually very rare. So even though it might at first seem like, oh, that would be great, actually, it's not so great. And then stat fact number three about pain is individuals with red hair require higher levels of anesthesia in order to be sedated and may be more sensitive to opioids than other individuals. So there you go. You learned three stat facts about pain. And if you are intrigued and want to learn more, keep listening. Okay, let's first start off by defining what pain actually is. So the International Association for the Study of Pain, or the IASP Council, defines pain as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage. The IASP also defines the three main types of pain, nociceptive pain, neuropathic pain, and nociplastic pain. So let's talk about each of these. So nociceptive pain is the pain associated with damage to the body's tissues and is often a result of injuries, such as if your patient had surgery or if they fell and sprained their ankle. It typically responds well to opioid and non-opioid medications. Now, there are two subtypes of nociceptive pain, which each travel through different pathways to reach the spinal cord and the brain. So somatic pain is pain felt in the bone, the muscles, the skin, and the connective tissues. It's specific to the area that's affected and is easy to pinpoint. 
Depending on the specific location and the tissue, somatic pain may be described as throbbing, sharp, burning, or aching. So if you fall and sprain your ankle, you're experiencing somatic pain. And then the other subtype of nociceptive pain is visceral pain. This is pain associated with the internal organs and is way more difficult to localize. Visceral pain is often described as aching or pressure, but can also be sharp, gnawing, colicky, or cramping. Note that visceral pain can cause referred pain, which is pain felt elsewhere in the body. So for example, with gallbladder disease and the pain of a gallbladder attack, there's often referred pain with this. The pain with a gallbladder attack could refer to the right shoulder or the right scapula. So that's a really great example of referred pain. So that was nociceptive pain. Again, that is pain associated with damage to the body's tissue. There are two subtypes, somatic pain, which is very easy to pinpoint, and then visceral pain, which is more generalized and harder to localize. The second main type of pain is neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain is associated with damaged or abnormal nerve tissue. Examples of neuropathic pain include things like trigeminal neuralgia, shingles, amputation and that phantom limb pain that occurs, and very commonly diabetic neuropathy. It is often described as intense burning or pins and needles, a shooting pain or electric shocks. Additionally, the patient may describe sensitivity to touch and to movement. Neuropathic pain is often treated with adjuvant medications, including skeletal muscle relaxants and antidepressants. Unfortunately, those with neuropathic pain tend to have more severe pain, and it can be difficult to manage. And then this third classification is nociplastic pain. According to the IASP Council, nociplastic pain is pain that arises from altered nociception despite no clear evidence of actual or threatened tissue damage. And this is a newer classification of pain by the IASP, and the full mechanisms and, and how it works is still not completely and fully understood. We do know that this alteration and nociception causes the activation of peripheral nociceptors, which leads to these sensations of pain. And it's thought to be the type of pain associated with conditions like fibromyalgia, tension headaches, and some types of low back pain. So to summarize, that was the three main types of pain, nociceptive pain, which includes somatic pain and visceral pain. Number two was neuropathic pain, which is often associated with diabetic neuropathy. And number three was nociplastic pain, which is often associated with conditions like fibromyalgia. Now, it's also really important to distinguish between acute and chronic pain. So acute pain is pain that lasts less than six months and may often just last a few minutes and is generally associated with a specific injury, such as surgery or when you fell and sprained your ankle. It is considered protective and resolves once the injury heals. Chronic pain, however, is pain that has lasted longer than six months and is felt most days. Chronic pain can be related to a variety of conditions such as fibromyalgia, cancer, 
back pain, headaches, and arthritis. Individuals with chronic pain are at high risk for anxiety and depression, both of which can exacerbate pain perception. Chronic pain has detrimental effects on both quality of life and work productivity. So let's talk very briefly about the body's response to pain. Though pain is an unwelcome and unpleasant experience, it's actually really important and highly beneficial to the body. Think of pain as the body's alarm system that something is wrong and you need to change something in order to prevent further injury. So when the body undergoes an injury, pain encourages us to behave in a way that promotes healing. For example, if you sprain your ankle, pain signals prevent you from continuing to walk on that injured ankle. The result is that you rest the injured body part, which helps it to heal. When the body is exposed to a painful stimulus, the stimulus is transformed into a nerve impulse, which travels to the brain. The brain then perceives the pain, bringing it into conscious awareness. And the body's response to pain is widespread and basically affects all the body systems. So in the nervous system, pain activates the sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight response. Looking at the respiratory system, pain causes tachypnea and shallow breathing. And when individuals are experiencing shallow breathing, guess what that does? That puts them at higher risk for pneumonia. We don't want that. There's also effects with the cardiovascular system. Pain causes tachycardia. It causes hypertension. In the gastrointestinal system, pain can cause nausea, it can cause vomiting, it can cause delayed gastric emptying, reduced gastric motility, and constipation. In the endocrine system, pain causes hyperglycemia, that's part of that fight-or-flight response, and increases cortisol levels. In the neurological system, pain causes depression, fear, anxiety, and difficulty concentrating. In addition, chronic pain has shown to cause the brain to shrink over time. In the musculoskeletal system, pain leads to muscle tension, shaking, and shivering. And in the immune system, pain increases the individual's risk for infection. Researchers found that pain reduces the amount of available oxygen, which makes the skin less effective at fighting off pathogens. Remember, skin is your first line of defense. Now let's talk about assessing pain. It's one of the most common assessments that you will do as a nurse, or if you've been a nurse for a while, you this is old hat for you. You've been doing this probably daily at your job, multiple times a day, every day that you work, probably for many years. So looking at pain assessment. It's important to understand how multifactorial it is. And one of the components of the pain assessment is the severity of pain. Now, the most commonly used pain scale is the 0 to 10 scale, but there are actually multiple tools available, and we'll talk briefly through some of the most common ones in just a moment. 
which pain scale you use really depends on a lot of factors, the patient's age, their cognitive abilities, and their level of consciousness. So let's first start with that common numeric rating scale. So with this scale, the patient self-reports their pain on a 0 to 10 scale. 0 indicates no pain, and a number 10 pain indicates the worst pain imaginable. The numerical scale is ideal for patients with normal cognition who are able to self-report their pain. It is not suitable for patients who have dementia, reduced level of consciousness, or young children. And this is the most common rating scale that you will see used. Then there's the adult nonverbal pain scale, or NVPS. So this pain scale is utilized in individuals who are not able to self-report their pain. It looks at behavioral cues and vital signs to determine if the individual is feeling pain or at risk for feeling pain. So the NVPS, the adult nonverbal pain scale, assigns points in five different categories, facial expression, level of activity, presence of guarding, vital signs, and respiratory status. This pain scale is suitable for adults with dementia, individuals on palliative care, and patients who are non-communicative, such as maybe someone with global aphasia. Another very commonly used pain scale is pain aid. P-A-I-N-A-I-D. This is another behavioral pain scale utilized for patients who are unable to self-report their pain and is specific for individuals with advanced dementia. The pain aid scale looks at breathing, vocalization, facial expression, body language, and consolability, all as indicators of whether or not the individual is experiencing pain. And then we have the CPOT, a pain scale I am intimately familiar with, having worked in the ICU for so long. CPOT stands for Critical Care Pain Observation Tool. And again, this is used in the ICU, and it looks at facial expression, body movement, compliance with the ventilator if the patient's on a ventilator, and then if they're not on the ventilator, it looks at vocalization, and it also looks at muscle tension. So this was the one I used the absolute most in the ICU, and I still use it today in recovery with my critical patients. Next is FLACC, F-L-A-C-C. This is typically a pediatric scale. It was originally developed and is validated for use in children age two months to seven years as a way to assess post-operative pain, though you may see it also used during potentially painful procedures in children, such as getting stitches. The FLAC scale looks at behavioral clues, facial expression, leg position and activity, level of activity overall, crying, and consolability. So it follows the letters of the acronym F-L-A-C-C, facial expression, leg position and activity, level of activity overall, crying, and consolability. Another easy-to-use pain scale that you might utilize in children is the Wong-Baker Faces Scale. This is utilized for those who are able to self-report pain. So yes, it could be used in adults as an alternative to the numeric rating scale. And it's also just especially appropriate for children 
about over the age of three, and it can be really helpful in adults who have difficulty communicating verbally or who have mild to moderate cognitive impairment. To use this scale, the individual is asked to select a picture of a face that best describes their pain. Next is the Modified Pain Assessment Tool, or MPAT. The MPAT scale is an observational tool utilized in neonates aged 24 weeks to 6 months. It looks at several factors, as do all of them, including posture, sleep pattern, expression, cry, color, respirations, heart rate, oxygen saturation level, blood pressure, and the nurse's overall impression of the child. So that one definitely has a lot of components to it. And then there's another one used in the NICU called the Neonatal Pain Agitation and Sedation Scale, or NPASS. This scale looks at both behavior and physiology to assess pain and sedation in neonates of all ages, including preterm infants, like I said, in the NICU. This scale looks at crying and irritability, behavior, facial expression, extremity tone, and vital signs. So again, when you are assessing the patient's pain level, sometimes you'll be asking the patient to self-report pain, and you just want to make sure that you are utilizing those tools, such as the numeric rating scale or the Wong-Baker faces scale, in individuals for whom it is appropriate to do so. Other times, you'll be utilizing an observational tool. And the unit that you work on or the unit, if you're a student where you're doing your clinicals, may have a specific one that they utilize per protocol or just in general practice for their patients. For example, in the ICU where I worked for many years, it was the CPOT, okay? So just know which pain scale you're using and who it is most appropriate for. Now, Assessing pain goes beyond assessing the patient's pain number or the severity of the pain. When possible, you really want to look at the whole picture. And I like to use the mnemonic OPQRST because it's really hard to forget a key component when it's all laid out for you in alphabetical order like this. So O stands for onset. That stands for asking the patient, when did the pain start? Did it come on suddenly or did it come on gradually? P is for provocation or palliation. What makes the pain worse? What makes the pain better? This could be things like medication could make it better, rest, heat, ice, a certain position. Those could all be things that make it better. And then examples of things that make the pain worse. Sometimes the patient will say moving or taking a deep breath or walking on it. If you know, if you've sprained your ankle, for example. Q stands for quality. What is the quality of the pain? Ask the patient to describe it. Is it burning, dull, sharp, constant, aching, cramping, etc.? See if you can get them to describe it before you start feeding them example descriptor words because you don't want to lead them. But if they're having trouble, you can name a few descriptor words and they could see, oh, I see what you're getting at. You wanting me to tell you what it feels like. R stands for radiation. Does the pain radiate to other areas of the body? S stands for severity, and this is where you would ask the patient to describe the severity of the pain, again, using the appropriate pain scale for that patient. And T stands for timing. How long has the pain lasted? Is it getting better? Is it getting worse over time? Or is it staying the same? 
So that would be part of your full pain assessment. Again, that's OPQRST, which stands for onset, provocation or palliation, quality, radiation, severity, and timing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Now let's talk about pain interventions. And while it may seem like the first treatment for pain in the clinical setting is always opioid use, successful pain management actually involves a multifaceted approach. So we're going to look first at opioid medications, which would be things like morphine or fentanyl, hydromorphone, hydrocodone, and oxycodone. Of course, there are others. Opioids are generally utilized to treat moderate to severe pain, such as post-operative pain, the pain associated with a myocardial infarction, and cancer-related pain. Common adverse effects of opioids include respiratory depression. That's the big one. There's also constipation, orthostatic hypotension, and of course, sedation. If a patient becomes over-sedated with opioids and has respiratory depression, the reversal agent is naloxone. Note that the effects of naloxone may not last as long as the opioid effects and resedation is possible. Patients who receive naloxone must be monitored closely for at least two hours, but your facility may have a different length of time for that. It's at least two hours after administration of naloxone to ensure they do not experience respiratory depression again once the naloxone wears off. And then we have non-opioid pain medications like acetaminophen and NSAIDs. That would be an example of an NSAID might be ibuprofen or Ketorolac. These are utilized to treat mild to moderate pain and may also be used in coordination with opioid analgesics for more severe pain. So looking at acetaminophen, a key thing to know about this medication is that it can cause hepatotoxicity, and in the clinical setting, healthy individuals are limited to 3 to 4 grams per day. Typically, in the clinical setting, it's 4 grams per day, and at home, it's 3 grams per day, but some facilities may limit it to 3 grams per day. A key teaching point is to ensure patients understand that hydrocodone contains acetaminophen, and that taking too much hydrocodone not only puts them at risk for respiratory depression from the opioid component, but that liver toxicity is possible due to the acetaminophen component. And then NSAIDs like ibuprofen can cause gastric bleeding with sustained use. They can also cause hypertension and renal impairment. NSAIDs are generally used to treat pain associated with inflammation, such as 
muscle aches or inflammatory arthritis, but they are also used postoperatively in some cases where bleeding risk is not significant. A commonly used postoperative NSAID is IV or IM Ketorlac, but no, it can cause gastric irritation, renal failure, gastric ulcers, and significant bleeding, especially if its use extends beyond five days. So I don't want to discredit or discount the massive impact that acetaminophen and NSAIDs can have on a patient's pain. And I get kind of some disbelief from patients in the recovery room all the time when I ask them about their pain and I suggest one of these medications, but they can actually be really, really helpful. And what I have found and what the research shows is that when patients are treated with something like acetaminophen or Ketorolac, then their use of opioids can go down because this pain relief that is partially from the acetaminophen or the NSAIDs really does help kind of decrease that opioid use. So here's a fantastic example. So when I was working in the ICU, I had a patient who had had a really, really, really big back surgery, really big back surgery. And these surgeries are incredibly, incredibly painful. And I was working night shift and all night long, this poor patient, just so uncomfortable, so uncomfortable. And I'm giving so much Uh, fentanyl, maybe even some Dilaudid in there. And it's just constant all night long, moaning, crying, can't get comfortable, can't sleep, all of that. Finally, I get an order for some Tylenol. I give the patient some Tylenol. Within an hour, they were asleep and finally comfortable enough to get some sleep. And the patient's husband, who happened to be a physician, had had come by because she had been having such a rough night and said, oh my gosh, what did you give her? And I said, I gave her some Tylenol. And he could not believe that just the addition of Tylenol to the medications that she was already receiving made such an impactful difference. So never discount the power of medications just because they're not opioids doesn't mean they're not effective. So that brings me to the concept of adjuvant analgesic. Sometimes you'll see acetaminophen and something like ibuprofen or Ketorolac used to enhance or um, make the pain medication just work better, right? So adjuvant medications are medications that have a primary clinical use other than pain, but are used as analgesics in some cases. And sometimes you'll hear acetaminophen and Ketorolac used as adjuvants, but for the most part, we're looking at medications that don't have a primary clinical use for pain as, you know, the specific adjuvants. So adjuvant analgesics may be utilized as monotherapy for certain types of chronic pain, They can be used as an enhancement for opioids so that less opioids are used, great example that I just mentioned, or to address symptoms that exacerbate pain, such as anxiety, inflammation, and depression. So let's talk through some common adjuvant analgesics. So first are skeletal muscle relaxants, such as baclofen and cyclobenzaprine. These are primarily used to treat muscle spasticity but also have beneficial effects in many types of neuropathic pain. 
Antidepressants such as amitriptyline, which is a tricyclic antidepressant, and duloxetine, which is an SNRI, may be used to address chronic pain, including back pain, fibromyalgia, and neuropathic pain. Anticonvulsants, such as carbamazepine and gabapentin, may be utilized, and I see gabapentin used quite a bit to treat pain associated with diabetic neuropathy, and you may also see it used for post-herpetic neuralgia as well. And what gabapentin does is it basically changes the way the brain senses pain. Corticosteroids are another adjuvant. They decrease pain by reducing inflammation, by reducing edema, and they can also reduce nerve depolarization, which makes them effective adjuvants for things like bone pain, for visceral pain, and pain associated with, you know, an inflammatory injury and neuropathic pain. There it is again. Bisphosphonates may be utilized to lessen bone pain associated with some types of cancer. Antihistamines could even be used as adjuvants. Hydroxyzine and even diphenhydramine can reduce anxiety associated with pain and may help muscular pain as well. And then speaking of anxiety, how about anti-anxiety medications such as diazepam or Valium? This is used to treat pain associated with muscle spasm. And then another one is botulinum toxin or Botox. This is a local medication that relieves muscle spasticity, which can contribute to migraine headaches. So a lot of times, individuals who suffer from migraines will get Botox injections in their neck, which helps reduce that muscle spasticity, that muscle tension, and associated migraine. So now let's look at some non-pharmacologic pain management therapies. And probably the most commonly used at the bedside in the clinical setting are going to be heat, cold, distraction, and positioning. So heat is utilized to improve blood flow. It can relax muscles and reduce stiffness, while cold is used to decrease inflammation. So you have to kind of understand what kind of pain your patient is having so that you choose the appropriate temperature-related therapy. So again, heat is utilized to improve blood flow, relax muscles, and reduce stiffness. So if I've got a patient who maybe has had an abdominal surgery and they're cramping, then I might put heat on their abdomen while cold is used to decrease inflammation. Maybe I've got a patient who had their sprained ankle worked on or broken bone worked on. There's a lot of inflammation. Then cold might be appropriate for that. The general rule of thumb with heat and cold therapy is not to exceed about 20 minutes at a time and to watch the skin carefully for injury. So one interesting application of cold therapy is after a patient has a Lafort procedure, which is a very, very significant jaw surgery. And these patients will be in a pretty significant amount of pain. And if the surgeon is really great, in my opinion, they will order this kind of like face, it's like a face mask type thing that hooks up to a machine and cool water runs through it. So a machine like this with cool water can be left on for long periods of time because it's not actual ice. But if you're putting actual ice on the patient, then it's about 20 minutes on and then about 20 minutes off. And anytime you're using heat or 
cold therapy, you want to watch the skin very carefully for injury and consider putting maybe just like a layer of something in between the actual ice pack and the patient's skin. And then with heat, just being very careful that if you're using like a heating pad device or a heat pack that you're not burning the skin. Now, distraction can be another effective way to address probably more mild to moderate pain and includes things like watching television, talking with the visitor, maybe getting the patient up and moving around, or maybe they're playing solitaire on their phone. Those would all be great distraction devices. And then positioning. Positioning is really an easy and I would say often overlooked method for lessening pain. Simply elevating the affected extremity on two to three pillows, like like say, for example, if your patient sprained their ankle, that's going to reduce swelling and the additional pressure that it places on nerve tissue and reduce pain. For patients with chronic pain, my best advice is always ask them what position, what interventions help their pain. They definitely know best. Now, another non-pharmacologic pain therapy you may see utilized for chronic pain is transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation or TENS. And the patient will have a TENS device or a TENS unit. And what this device does is it utilizes small electrodes that emit electrical signals that block pain messages from being sent to the brain and basically changes how the individual perceives pain. And then another really important pain modality to talk about quickly is patient-controlled analgesia or PCA. So with patient-controlled analgesia, the patient is in control of when they receive pain medication, and they do this via a system that enables them to push a button and self-administer safe doses of opioids such as morphine. So some key things to know about patient-controlled analgesia are that the medication may be dosed as intermittent boluses only, and that's probably the most common way, or the physician may also prescribe a basal dose that runs continuously in the background at a very low rate. Always read your medication orders carefully and double check them with another nurse prior to administration. You're going to set the pump up, have another nurse check it, and then once it's signed off independently by someone else, then you start the PCA. You also want to make sure that the patient is the only one pushing the button to deliver a dose. Teach visitors not to press the button for the patient as this could cause oversedation and respiratory depression, even though the PCA is programmed to only deliver doses within a set interval. Like let's say, for example, it's every 10 minutes. And even if the patient pushes it 100 times in 10 minutes, they're only going to get the one dose. Even with that, if a patient's asleep or already kind of sedated and they get another dose, then this could cause oversedation and respiratory depression. So you want to teach visitors, don't touch the button for gam-gam. She needs to do it herself. You also want to monitor patients very closely for oversedation and respiratory depression, especially if they've got a basal dose in addition to their bolus doses. If the patient becomes overly sedated or has respiratory depression, let the MD know immediately and anticipate a lowering of the PCA dose. And if the patient has a basal rate, anticipate that basal rate being discontinued. 
If emergent reversal is needed, again, the medication utilized is naloxone. And if the patient has no respiratory effort, you've got a BVM close by, you know what to do. You're going to manually ventilate and oxygenate the patient. Patients with PCA should be on continuous pulse oximetry monitoring, and some hospitals do require supplemental oxygen at at least two liters nasal cannula to help prevent hypoxia. And then with that, anytime you're doing any kind of pain intervention, you always want to come back, reassess your patient's response to the intervention. If it was a PO medication, that is generally in one hour, you reassess the patient's pain level. If it was with something like an IV morphine or something like that, about 15 minutes would be an appropriate amount of time to reassess the patient's pain. And with positioning, I would say give the patient a minute to kind of settle into the position, check back after, you know, a few minutes, maybe maybe right away they're still in some discomfort from moving around, but get them into that position, ask them to just kind of let it settle for a few minutes, and then maybe after like five minutes, go back and reassess their pain. And, and you may need to work with them and troubleshoot a little bit to find that optimal position. So I hope this brief overview of pain has helped you understand this really important fundamental nursing concept. And if it did, I'd love if you would follow this show so that you never miss an episode. And I'd love it even more if you would share it with a friend. Now, I do want to take a quick minute before I go for our listener shout out. And this one goes out to Cassandra. Hey, Cassandra. Cassandra said this, I have to say thank you. I stumbled across your podcast during my second attempt at med surge. I wish I would have discovered your podcast a few months ago during my first attempt because I'm sure I would have passed. Your study sesh podcast is a brilliant way to study and I'm so grateful I found it. Thanks to you, I passed med surge today. I'm excited to use study sesh for the remainder of my program too. Thank you again. Cassandra, I love this. Thank you for taking time to let me know that the podcast and study sesh have helped you pass your med surge class. And yes, I wish you had found me early on too. I wish that for all students, but hey, we found each other and you're doing absolutely amazing. And I'm especially really proud of you because you didn't let not meeting your goal hold you back. I always say many nurses take the scenic route and that doesn't make them any less of a nurse, any less of a nursing student. It means you have grit, you have strength, you have courage. These are all fantastic qualities that are going to make you an awesome nurse. Again, I'm so, so proud of you and thank you again for letting me know. So I will see you back here Next week, we're going to talk about a medication that you have probably seen or probably heard of, but maybe have no idea what it's all about. So we'll talk about that next week. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night 
to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long.